Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What brings you to a theater performance? Sure, we like to be entertained, but sometimes what we see on stage helps amplify important issues of the day or gives us a different perspective than what we're used to. Sometimes the connection is deeper. That character on stage is one of us. This month, a docudrama at Yale Repertory Theater focuses on the Elm City. It's called Good Faith, four chats about race and the New Haven Fire Department. It's on a play-by-play of what happened in the courtroom when the city was sued by some New Haven firefighters over a promotional exam. Instead, playwright Karen Hartman looks at the conversations that take place after the highly publicized lawsuit, which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009. Coming up, we'll talk with the playwright about what she hoped to accomplish with good faith. We'll also get response from two New Haven residents who are or two New Haven uh, firefighters, one retired, the other current, who are characters in the play. Frank Ritchie, a white firefighter who was the lead plaintiff in the reverse discrimination case, and Michael Briscoe, a retired black New Haven firefighter. Now, before we hear more about the play, we wanted to revisit the landmark reverse discrimination case. So joining us from a studio at Yale University is Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and a lecturer at Yale Law School. She wrote about the Ritchie versus Ritchie v. DeStefano case for Slate in 2009. Emily, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we should say up front um, that you and the playwright Karen actually were housemates when you both were at Yale. Uh, but uh, we just wanted to bring, let our listeners know that there was a connection there at one time. But uh, you've also reported on this, uh, this case, Richie versus DeStefano. So tell us a little bit about some of the, the history uh, in the New Haven Fire Department uh, when, it, when we talk about discrimination. Um, often there were um, possible lawsuits uh, being filed even going back to the 70s. Yes, that's right. Um, let me just first say I'm very happy that Karen was uh, Karen and I were housemates in college. But yes, um, you know the history of American fire departments in general in cities um, is one of different groups uh, contesting who gets these positions. And you know this is true about civil service jobs in general. There's a lot of competition for them. These are good, valuable jobs. And so what we see in New Haven in the 1970s are African Americans trying to get hired and promoted in the fire department. And at that point, this is a department that was largely closed to them. It was historically dominated by white people and positions were kind of passed along. So it was difficult for African Americans to really break into these um, valued civil service positions, and they sued a race uh, for race discrimination in the 70s, and they won that case in New Haven. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, this exam that was created to uh, possibly prevent discrimination, to allow uh, more African Americans and Hispanics living uh, in the city uh, or part of the fire department to be promoted. Uh, this exam was created, and what happened? 
Well, what happened was that the city had a whole series. They had 14 promotional spots available in um, in 2003. And so the city negotiated with the union that the process would be to give out these spots based on 60% written exam and 40% verbal exam. And every point on these tests mattered a great deal. We were not um, talking about a system in which people were assessed for other attributes. You know, you might imagine that for firefighters, you'd want to test also like how they behave on the scene, um, what their supervisors think about them. None of that was part of it. It was just this test. So New Haven gives this test. And what happens is that the test results show that 13 of these 15 promotions would have gone to white candidates and maybe two to Hispanic candidates and none to African-Americans. So that is a dilemma for the city. It has this history of defending um, itself against race discrimination suits brought by um, black applicants to the fire department. And now it has a test that um, isn't going to promote any African-Americans and isn't reflective of the city's own demographic composition, right? I mean, we're talking about New Haven, a place with a large black population and, and also many Hispanics. So something seemed off here. So the city went ahead and threw out the results. Uh, their intent, uh, they didn't want to violate uh, the t- Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Explain what that is, this idea of disparate impact. So federal civil rights law um, protects against discrimination on the basis of race and national origin and religion and sex. And there are a couple different ways that you can win a case. One is you can show that the government is intentionally discriminating. Now, it's often hard to show that, right? It like requires some smoking gun evidence where someone says, that they set out to um, invidiously discriminate. Most people don't leave that kind of record behind. What we do see in a lot of cases are evidence like the one in New Haven, where um, a supposedly neutral set of criteria are used for hiring or promotion. But the impact they have is not the same across all these groups, in this case, across the races. So here, the disparate impact is that this test um, does not lead to the promotion of any black firefighters. And so the black candidates are are experiencing this disparate impact. Well, when the city threw out uh, those results, you had a group of firefighters uh, led by Frank Ritchie uh, who sued because uh, they thought their uh, rights were violated. Uh, Explain a little bit more about um, their, their side. Well, you can see, uh, I think, pretty clearly why the people who studied hard for this test and were told they were going to be promoted would be frustrated when the test results are thrown out, right? This is like pretty much the most divisive um, way that you could go about this. Um, And so the folks who felt like they had studied really hard, they'd played by the rules, they sued the city. And Frank Ritchie in particular was a sympathetic plaintiff. He had dyslexia. He could show that he'd spent many, many hours studying, that he'd spent a lot of money on this test prep. And, you know, from his point of view, the test was something he'd relied on. Um, He'd studied for it and he felt like he'd earned his promotional spot. And so did the other folks who sued. Um, Right. That's (laughs) that's the basis of their claim. So when people think about uh, this case, uh, oftentimes affirmative action comes to mind, but this is different because the reverse discrimination uh, based on disparate uh, impact. This case, uh, what happened in the courts? 
what happens in the courts is that um, the city wins in the district court, that's at the trial level, and then in the Second Circuit, that's the appeals court. And the reason the city won um, in front of those judges was that those judges found that this whole testing system was not sufficiently job-related. In other words, like, yes, the questions on this written and verbal test, they were about firefighting. I should note that we've actually never seen the written test because it's been um, under seal as a business secret this whole time. But we've heard enough about it to know that they were very technical questions about how to fight a fire. But this was a paper and pen test. These were oral questions. They weren't related to watching someone actually perform in the field. And so um, these courts, the district court and the court of appeals said, you know what, this test isn't a good enough measure of who to promote in the fire department. However, when the case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled for Frank Ritchie and the other plaintiffs and told the city that they were not allowed to throw out this test. Um, Joining a guest again from uh, Yale University Studios is Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and a lecturer at Yale Law School. She wrote about the Ritchie v. v. Stefano case for Slate in 2009. Coming up, we're going to hear more about a play uh, based on this uh, significant uh, case. Um, We wanted to get some background from Emily about uh, the ins and outs of what happened uh, regarding uh, this uh, story in New Haven. And again, this was uh, decided upon by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009. So Emily... uh, uh, the, the exam was taken in 2003. A group of 20 uh, firefighters sued in 2004. By 2009, uh, the decision is the city was wrong to throw out uh, this uh, the results of this exam. And meanwhile, uh, what happened in the sense of how many African-Americans were uh, later promoted? Well, right. So by the time 2009 rolls around, there are additional promotional spots open because the city has had to freeze its promotions all this time. And so by then, there were, I believe, four, Karen can correct me if that's not quite right, um, I think four African-Americans who were in the end promoted because of these additional spots. And so from the city's point of view, this is a slightly better outcome, um, a little more equity than was possible in 2003 based on the test results. Uh, there are other uh, people uh, in the city of New Haven, uh, firefighters who sued. One of them is Michael Briscoe, who is uh, uh, portrayed by character in this play, Good Faith. Tell us a little bit about Michael Briscoe. And he was also someone that sued um, after uh, Richie V. Stefano. What happened there? Michael Briscoe was um, in the fire department for um, many years, and his character in the play, and I've talked to him, the real Michael Briscoe as well, he really loved his job firefighting, and um, and he wanted one of these promotional spots. So he took this, um, this set of tests. He scored very high on the verbal portion of the test, but low on the written portion, and so he was not promoted. Um, and he brought a separate lawsuit against the city um, based on the idea that the city should change the way it's weighting these tests, that at least it would be better to give more weight in the promotion decision to the verbal test than to the written test. And in the end, Mike um, dropped his suit. Uh, it, it, he decided not to fully pursue it. But the city, in the meantime, has made that shift. And so now in New Haven, um, the verbal test is weighted more than the written test. Um, and the city also, I believe, has finally given a little bit of 
of credit to job applicants who live in New Haven as opposed to other towns. That's been another kind of bone in contention of all this because a lot of the firefighters and people who um, get promoted don't necessarily live in New Haven. And, you know, the black firefighters and others who do live in the city feel that it's important to have the firefighters be um, part of the, the neighborhoods where that they're responding to. Emily, you mentioned that New Haven uh, would uh, change uh, how uh, they weighted these uh, particular uh, promotions. And I'm curious, uh, with uh, the fact that this case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, how did that change how cities uh, dealt with promotions? Are other cities doing it better? I think other cities are doing it better. Um, There's another process called uh, an assessment center. Um, And this is, you know, another method of promoting people within the fire department. Um, And the way assessment centers work is that testing professionals come in and they evaluate the particular skills you really need to do this job. Um, And a lot of those skills have to do with um, how you perform in the field, with your interpersonal skills. And so these um, they design through the assessment center a combination of interviews and group discussions, some written exercises, some oral presentations. And then they do some role play in emergency scenarios to see how people behave. Um, And, you know, a whole group of cities, uh, you know, from places in Ohio to Washington, D.C., have used these assessment centers. And my my sense when I was reporting on this was that this seemed like a more um, fair way to do promotions because it's really measuring the range of skills that firefighters need to do their jobs well. And Emily, when this case was going through the courts, uh, there were civil rights advocates that were worried um, if the Ritchie case was successful, uh, that would uh, weaken Title VII protections. What has been the impact? Well, the case, I think, did weaken Title VII protections in the sense that it um, made it harder for cities to argue that because they are facing a potential claim of disparate impact of, you know, a protected group, whether it's a racial minority or a religious minority or women, um, complaining that they are not being given a fair shot. When cities make that argument, they have to have more proof than they did in the past that that's a real threat from that kind of lawsuit. So in other words, it's easier to win a case for what we call reverse discrimination, white people suing that they've been denied something than it was before um, this case was decided. At the same time, the facts in this case are very specific. I mean, this idea of giving a test and then withdrawing it afterward, that was a big problem for New Haven. And I think because other cities have tried to avoid making that mistake, the case has not um, had as much impact as I think people feared um, when they were worried about narrowing Title VII protections at the time. Emily Bazelon, staff writer for New York Times Magazine and a lecturer at Yale Law School. Uh, She joined us today from the studios at Yale University. Emily, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, why write a play based on this reverse discrimination case? We're going to ask the playwright Karen Hartman that question and more right after the break. We're also going to hear from the real people Karen wrote into this play, Good Faith, including lead plaintiff Frank Ritchie. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Have you seen Good Faith? The play had its world premiere at Yale Rep earlier this month. It closes next Saturday, February 23rd. It's inspired by labor case, Richie v. DeStefano, which we just heard about, that was fought all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009. Now, Good Faith is not a play-by-play of what happened in the courtroom after 20 New Haven firefighters sued, believing their civil rights were violated when the city threw out the results of that promotional exam. Rather, it focuses on the conversations that happened after and confronts, in the words of the playwright, questions around race, class, and justice that are still happening in America today. For more about the play Good Faith, joining us from a studio at KUVO in Denver is playwright Karen Hartman. Karen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. And I should say it's Good Faith for chats about race in the New Haven uh, Fire Department. Uh, So Karen, uh, we had mentioned that uh, you and Emily Bazelon uh, were housemates at one time uh, when you were at Yale. Um, So you're familiar with the city. Um, Tell us why you wrote this play. Well, I, I was approached by Yale Rep to write a play about this case. So they came to me with it because uh, I have in the past written a couple of other plays that were based in interviews up at the top. Um, but once they, once Yale sent me the material about the case, which turned out to be Emily's Slate articles, which I hadn't yet read, I looked at the way that these ideas of fairness and justice and who's a hero unfolded in the city, and it just felt like the perfect tangled hot mess that you really want to get at in a drama where something is uh, so large and yet uh, contained in something that can be explained, you know, on the radio in 10 minutes in a play in two hours, you know, but yet contains um, some of the deepest uh, conflicts about race and class and justice that are going on in America. There are five characters in this play. Briefly describe them. And one of them is you. Yeah, well, I I, want to be clear and say this is a semi-documentary play, so all the characters are based on people. Um, This isn't a word-for-word documentary, so I made some stuff up, um, and I just want to be clear about that. Yeah, but one of the characters, uh, somewhat reluctantly, um, is, is called the writer and is based on me because by the time I got to the end of the conversations, Uh, in New Haven, which I finished in the summer of 2017. So they spanned two administrations, like late Obama and early Trump. Uh, I felt that the conversations themselves contained the, the heat and the emotion and the compassion that I wanted to put on the stage. And once I'd made that decision that I would use some sort of raw Uh, raw to processed versions of those conversations. Uh, I was in the conversations, so uh, I was kind of stuck. I couldn't really um, extricate uh, myself, which I think is also fair, you know, as like a white liberal lady in my 40s, you know, to say, well, I guess, you know, I'm actually part of conversations about race and the New Haven Fire Department, rather than saying I am reporting on those conversations or I am you know, in the corner creating a project about those conversations. So, so, so there I the, am. Yeah. So in but, the play, but, you're acknowledging your own leanings while you're researching and writing about this uh, complicated subject. Yeah, my leanings and, and kind of my position and the uh, why people spoke to me the way they did. And the other characters, so there's a character based on uh, Frank Ritchie and a character based on Michael Briscoe. We heard a bit about um 
those two gentlemen. We're going to talk to them. Um, a character uh, based on a firefighter um, who's now a battalion chief, Tyrone Ewing, um, who was one of the African-American firefighters who was promoted in 2009 um, as a result of uh, that test being certified, and he was one of the men who was uh, like a few spots deeper on the list. Um, and then the lawyer for the plaintiffs, uh, Karen Torrey. So those are the four characters. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, wh- why uh, a little bit more about some of the characters, including talking to the real uh, Frank Ritchie, who's in studio with me. Uh, but Karen, um, as the play has been seen by members of the public, it's been written up in reviews, there has been some criticism of you putting yourself into uh, this play. Uh, how do you respond to that? I mean, this is why I tried to not put myself into the play. And Emily would uh, uh, will be relieved to know that for a long time I was working on the idea of a reporter character. So I was thinking, maybe there'll be someone who's not Emily, but sort of in that position. Um, you know, I, all I can do is come at a conversation in the way that seems the most honest and the most entertaining to me. And... So this is the way that seems the most honest and the most entertaining to me. I've never put myself in a play before. I may never put myself in a play again. Um, but there it is, you know. This, this, these are conversations in which I participated. So for this very real and very raw play, that's what I decided to do, to just sort of acknowledge there I am. And the role is much smaller than it used to be. So it kind of depends when you saw it, too. There are monologues that got cut. But yeah, and there I, it is. I understand that uh, even through opening night, you were rewriting uh, parts of the script. What were you trying to change to get it right? Well, it's pretty typical to keep rewriting a play to opening night because um, you don't really know what you have until uh, a live audience sees it. So those those five previews were really important. And um, what I was trying to get right is, like, what is the story that we're here to watch tonight? And that's what I understood about the writer, that she functions as a kind of intro and a kind of glue. She takes the place uh, class-wise of many people um, who come to it, who are typical theater-going, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class liberals, um, which is a terrible thing to say, but it's true, because I don't want anyone in the audience to be able to say, oh, well, I'm not like those white firefighters. Like, I'm very liberal and enlightened. Therefore, I can distance myself from the racial issues of the play. So she does. she's an introduction, and then she's kind of a glue. And she actually says very, very little. She talks for maybe seven minutes out of the entire play. Um, and so that was what I was looking at. And then the other piece was just the plain old legal language that you've got to get all these details about the case, which are frankly kind of boring, into this two-hour play. And yet, if you don't understand what went down in 2003 and then in 2009, it's hard to follow the emotional conversations that are more interesting. So that um, expository material was the other piece that uh, we were tinkering with quite a lot up to the last minute. Um, You mentioned that some of the details um, were boring, but in the sense that these details impacted real people, real people that don't live very far uh, from Yale Rep and some of the the suburbs. Uh, Were you concerned uh, that uh, the way that you depicted some of these uh, characters uh, may uh, not have been fair? I mean, how did you balance that? Well, okay, let me back up and say I mean boring in a very narrow, dramatic sense, like information that you need rather than something that forwards an emotional story. I don't mean boring in the sense of uh, not significant, 
hot or interesting to people's real lives. This is a fascinating case. Um, And yes, I was very concerned about uh, how people would respond to being depicted. And uh, folks were really generous to talk to me and to talk to me on the record and to let me record those conversations. Nobody had to do that. And again, that's another reason for like leaving the play in people's more or less own, uh, if not own words, uh, own um, moral frameworks for uh, explaining why and how they feel how uh, they feel and why they did what they did. I came to uh, really admire all the people who I spoke with, which again is why these four characters surfaced is because I I have deep admiration and respect and interest in the four of them, and I wanted that to come through. This is where we live. Playwright Karen Hartman joins us from a studio in Denver at KUVO. She's talking about her play Good Faith at Yale Repertory Stage until Yale Repertory Theater until February 23rd. This docudrama is based on Richie V. Stefano, a reverse discrimination case that was fought all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009. The lead plaintiff in the case, uh, one of the characters in this play, also in studio with me now, Frank Ritchie. Frank, welcome to our show. Lucy, it's an honor to be here. I listen to you on the radio every day. Oh, well, wonderful. I know uh, uh, you listen to Paul Bass, too, down in New Haven. He's a, a great uh, guy that we end up um, having our show a lot because he knows a lot about what's happening in the city of New Haven. So tell us a little bit about, so uh, people might be aware of your name because you were the lead plaintiff if you're not from uh, the city of New Haven. But tell us a little bit about yourself. You come from a firefighting family. What drew you to the profession, Frank? Well, unfortunately, we don't have the time today to get into that type of background, especially when you have Emily and the playwright getting the facts wrong. Now, when it comes to race, race is a very divisive subject. It's a very sensitive subject, as it should be. And people on both sides of the argument are allowed to have their feelings. And as Americans, we need to do a better job communicating instead of just talking to each other. Sure. So... The problem is, is that facts are stubborn things. And I think John Adams said it very eloquently. And the Mike Briscoe case that's put forth in this play came about after the Ritchie case. We already won the United States Supreme Court. So Mike wasn't, I'm not using the word antagonist as just in a literal sense. He wasn't the antagonist to the Ritchie case. He actually thought the Ritchie plaintiff should be promoted. But what the playwright puts forward is that the weights of the test, how they score the written and the oral, those weights were systematically discriminatory or racist. The problem is, is that Mike Briscoe's case was legally meritless. It was reduced to racial rhetoric, and it's not Frank Ritchie's opinion. Let's just look at the facts very quick. Very quickly, okay? So, What was in question was the 60-40 weighting. So it was 60% written, which it's very critical Mm -hmm. for firefighters to have cognitive skills because we're making life and death decisions based off imperfect information and you almost got to make perfect decisions. So you need a command of the actual written material. So the test was 60-40, okay? If you switch the weights and made it 60% 60 oral and 40% written, you still promote three African-Americans. Now let's get crazy. Let's make it 70% oral, 30% written. You get three African-Americans. And let's get rid of the written test altogether, which would be insane because firefighters actually have to make command decisions 
100% oral, you still get three qualified African-Americans. Now, this isn't my words. This is in the words of Judge Haight, who analyzed the case yeah. and well, throughout Frank, the case. Well, Frank, we invited you. I, wait, hold on. We invited you into our studio to talk about um, how, uh, of course, the play uh, depicts you and others in New Haven. But we don't want to do a, a play-by-play, uh, particularly of uh, the merits of the case, because we're going to not have enough time. But that's, I wanted to hear just. I'll, I'll mention that you come from a firefighting family. I asked you about you know what drew you to the profession. You've been a firefighter for 21 years. Um, it must be uh, you know kind of surreal to see you being depicted on stage, again, this very landmark case. Um, obviously, you have issues with how uh, Karen uh, depicted some of the story. Uh, but, I mean, overall, what did you think of the play? To me, the play kind of looked like a kid that got rushed to do a term paper and didn't have the time to really dedicate to getting it right. It really ended up being a verbatim of, of truncated statements from Mike and I. I think that the play was essentially could have been done better just by putting Mike and I on the stage and have a cogent debate. The listeners would have got more out of it and it would have been real. The problem is you can't have honest conversations about race without being honest. The fact of the matter is the case was meritless. It was thrown out and then the city settled it anyway. So you're talking about the Mike Briscoe lawsuit, which we'll get to. But let's talk more about, again, um, Karen, I'm going to have you uh, respond because we've been able to hear uh, Frank for a little bit. Um, you know, he um, mentioned, uh, you know, he, he thought that it was uh, truncated. It didn't really tell uh, the whole side um, of the people involved. What's your response to that? Well, I, Frank is right in that um, he's absolutely right about that particular test and um, those 24 spots. And I actually do put that in the play several times, and that's why I focus on Tyrone Ewing, who is one of those African-American plaintiffs, not plaintiffs, he wasn't a plaintiff, but those African-American firefighters who was promoted. However, um, the disparate impact of written tests is something that is overall... uh, does uh, create a disparate impact towards African Americans. And so the question of why the city was working with that 60-40 weighting written to oral is a real question. That was something that was negotiated by the predominantly white union and, in fact, has changed significantly in order to create a better racial balance and a fairer racial balance in the fire department. So the weightings are now 35% written, 65% oral. And the reasoning is because overall, in general, written tests are going to have a disparate impact towards African Americans. And therefore, they have to be very, very strictly scrutinized in terms of, is this the best way to test? And so the facts of how the testing has evolved in the fire department shows that the city kind of learned from this case. And including, though Mike Briscoe's case was thrown out, what Mike Briscoe was arguing for in his case did come to pass. So that has to be looked at um, as well. So that was the piece that I wanted to uh, respond to in terms of the facts. And also the play makes it very clear that Mike's case uh, came after Frank's case and was in response to it. That is also absolutely true. 
Hi, Karen, and both. this is a question for both you and Frank. Again, uh, this is a, a, a play based on a case that had a lot of impact on people uh, within this fire department and the community. Um, if you're personally impacted, you're going to know more of the ins and outs um, of this particular, uh, this particular story. But also, as a playwright, you're thinking about how to draw people in from outside of New Haven. And what the larger point of this play is, uh, what were you trying to get at by focusing in on this particular landmark case, these conversations happening in the city afterward? How does that relate to somebody in Litchfield or in Pennsylvania? Um, I mean, it's not just about the city of New Haven, is it? No, not at all. So this case comes up in 2000. I mean, this case made its way through the courts uh, starting in 2003, but then hits the Supreme Court in 2009, which is like six months into the Obama administration, really shortly after um, the formation of the Tea Party. It's an early case, and I'm not a legal scholar, but so I'm not going to say the first. It's an early case of a um, a, a white victim plaintiff and that sense of like, there are two Americas here, there are two ways of looking at fairness and justice, uh, extends throughout the country and becomes more and more part of how uh, we think about things, how we think about race and, uh, you know, complicated way how we think about class. And that's why this case contains um, the seeds of these, of, of much broader um, conflicts and much broader uh, identity-based uh, politics and, and thinking. And um, so that's what is thrilling to me about this case, is it's like a harbinger of, of where we got to today. Um, where the case came down 10 years ago. Uh, Frank, earlier you mentioned um, some factual errors that you believe uh, uh, Karen made. Uh, I'm curious, specifically to your character, your story, what about the play spoke to you and what about the play uh, irked you? The whole premise irked me. I thought it was irresponsible for the playwright to put herself into it. And we thought when we were having the conversations, it would be for a play. And it turned out to be something that I didn't really consider a play. It was kind of strange. But I think one of the core issues in America with race is we're trying to socially engineer the fire department, okay? These are life and death decisions that firefighters make every day. And when it comes to judging people, okay, and I teach this, it was in the play actually, but I teach this in all my recruit classes, is it doesn't matter what someone's politics is or whether they're black, white, or Hispanic. It comes down to if I personally did something to get myself jammed up in a fire, would this individual make their spouse a widow and their kid parentless to try to save me? And the answer in New Haven is they all would. So that is what makes America great. If we want to talk about diversity and increasing diversity, it's not holding people back that are qualified to have the skills, knowledge, and abilities to succeed in America. Because if you work hard in America, anybody can succeed. The key is education. So we have disparity in Yale's graduation rates. We have disparity in high school rates. So should we go into every high school and Yale's graduating class and say, the answer is nobody gets a diploma this year until we figure this out. Or it makes no sense. So Emily, Emily, what do you call it? Because I can't just let this stay. <laughs> so she, you're going her, back to what Emily Bazelon uh, said about uh, the case. Uh, correct. But here... And very quickly. We don't want to run out sure. of time, Frank. Uh, well, they're filibustering, <laughs> so I'm trying here. Promotions aren't given out. Promotions are earned. 
and she throws out things as irresponsible. She's a Yale professor. She's very competent and articulate individual. And here she says they're just paper and pencil tests. No, they weren't. The tests were actually engineered. The city spent over $100,000 to ensure basic fairness. They weren't just an IQ test, which would be absurd. The questions were based off nationally consensus standard books from like fire engineering and our department's own SOPs. So we're talking about fire science and what firefighters have to do when they arrive on scene. And the oral interview panels were overweighted with minorities. Mm -hmm. Generally one individual that happened to be black, Hispanic, and white. And they had to come up with consensus scoring. So in other words, if we walk in here with three people, one person can't give you a 10 because they don't like the way you look, and the other give you an 80 and it drops your score. They actually had to agree on your score before you left. And the individuals evaluating you were all in the actual rank we were getting promoted for or above that and experts around the country. So, And then she throws out adverse, uh, she throws out assessment centers. That was all litigated out. And the fact of the matter is assessment centers have just as much, if not more, adverse impact than pen and paper tests. And the city expert that the city brought in, Chris Hornick, who was recognized by the Department of Justice for developing tests, he even admitted in the civil service meetings that assessment centers have just as much, if not sometimes more adverse impact. I found it on uh, his PowerPoint. Let's have, let's have Karen respond. And then I do have a, a follow up for you, Frank. Go ahead, Karen. I mean, Frank and the New Haven 20 came out of this case really big winners. And um, it would be, th again, this is why I am grateful to Frank for participating in the process without actually maybe knowing like what all the options are for how plays get written and what all the styles are for how plays uh, might come out and not knowing that they're it is a thing sometimes where plays are in a more interview style or whatever. So Frank was courageous there, and Frank is courageous. He runs into burning buildings. So, of course, it's threatening to have something come along that might change the narrative, right? And, yeah, like I wouldn't have set out to write a play about something that happened in 2009 if I didn't feel and believe that there was a more complicated way to look at what happened at that time. And so, of course, that is going to be disappointing and, and threatening. And the fact is that the city's way of assessing um, firefighters for promotions did change. And that as with, like, skills, anything from, say, being a surgeon to being a lifeguard, there's going to be an intellectual on paper component to the work and there's going to be a physical component to the work. And it is a question, how do you measure that? Um, in both surgery, lifeguarding, firefighting, you obviously have to know enough in your brain and on paper. And there has to be some way to assess, can you make the cut? Can you jump into the pool? Can you get into the building? Um, and so that was the question that we were looking at. And to Frank's point about Yale graduation rates, I think that's a really good point. And one of the reasons that 
I included the um, conservative lawyer Karen Tory is because she makes a really excellent argument that there was a class piece going on among um, the liberals at Yale Law School and in the Connecticut courts where the firefighters' claims seemed easy to dismiss, whereas um, looking at the discriminatory impact of, say, or uh, or the disparate impact of, say, the SAT, you know, will evolve much more slowly rather than a test being thrown out after people took it. And I did think that that was true, and I did think that was unfair of the city of New Haven. And that's why that class piece comes up so much um, in the play. Uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to go back to Frank. Uh, you know, the larger question of this play is also if disparities continue to exist, and they do in this country, who's responsible for fixing them? You said that you don't, don't look at the fire service in a vacuum. So who's responsible to, for fixing these disparities? I think the key comes down to education. That's what it all comes down to. And I'm going to give you a perfect example. We advocated for firefighters when they graduated the fire academy to be certified as firefighter one and firefighter two. And we got pushback from the city saying that, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics are going to they're not going to be able to pass it. It's the bigotry of low expectations. And we were like, no, you don't understand. If they don't get the foundation, then they can't go out and get the higher classes because firefighting is one of the only professions where our members go out and take classes to better themselves for the public on their own dime. But if you don't have the foundation, it's so hard to get into the system. And now that we require the individuals to be firefighter one, firefighter two, and EMT, we see a more diverse pool. But they're just individuals. But now you gave them those individuals the skills that they're taking those advanced classes on their own at the state, just like every other firefighter. You got to remember one thing. To be a firefighter, it's not like being in a regular workplace. We have to love each other a little bit. The New York Times came into my firehouse and it looked like the reporter was disappointed that we were all eating together and we were all of different races. This is an individual that I'm putting my life in their hands. It determines if I go home to my kids. New Haven's a very diverse fire department. We not only live together, we eat together, we respond to calls, we stay at the firehouse overnight together. So I think it's important that Education is the key, and it starts in high schools, and you can't socially engineer a profession where somebody may not go home or receive a significant injury that could change their life. Uh, again, you train uh, firefighters at the academy, but if we're talking about education disparities, you know, what have you personally done or others uh, to help uh, kids that are in the city of New Haven schools to get them to be at that place to be able to get into the academy? I'm trying right now to work with the Farnham House and our chief and actually the chief of Hartford also said that he was willing to participate and I'm hoping that we can move this forward. But I'd like to do interview prep for kids, not just because it's not just for the fire department, it's for everyday jobs. And I think that I'm hoping that this year that will come to fruition. But every day New Haven firefighters are out in the community talking to school kids, working, writing. I should mention that Emily Bazelon uh, did call back uh, to say that she, of course, disagrees with some of the errors that you said uh, and were in her reporting, but we can't allow this show just to be a debate on uh, back and forth. Uh, we wanted to get more about what the play, the point of the play was, to have conversations about race. But we do thank you, Frank Ritchie, for coming on to talk a little bit about the perspective of seeing yourself portrayed in good faith. 
Lucy, I really thank you. And maybe Emily will invite me to Yale to, for that debate. <laughs> oh, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks again, Frank Ritchie, who is battalion chief in the city of New Haven and also union president. Uh, we thank you, Frank. Also, Karen Hartman's going to stay with us. She's the playwright who wrote Good Faith, Four Chats About Race in the New Haven Fire Department. This play is definitely um, causing conversations to happen in our state, despite the case being years old. We're going to hear more from another character in this play, Michael Briscoe, right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're learning more about a play at Yale Rep this month. It's called Good Faith, Four Chats About Race in the New Haven Fire Department. One of the characters is based on Frank Ritchie, the lead plaintiff in this reverse discrimination case that was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. We just heard from him, but as we heard from playwright Karen Hartman, who's with us today from a studio, KUVO in Denver, the play's larger focus is uh, more than just this lawsuit. Plenty of people affected by the city of New Haven's actions. Michael Briscoe is one of them. He joins us now by phone. You're a retired New Haven firefighter and former director of public safety communications for the city of New Haven. Uh, Michael, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. What did you think when Karen first approached you to talk about uh, her work on this play? I was a bit ambivalent. I didn't want to speak to anyone, any reporters or anybody, because a lot like the uh, show so far, my story has always been skewed or somehow attempted to be suppressed. So I just didn't trust the, the process. So um, she acted in good faith, so aptly named it the, is the play, and um, I responded. So uh, you felt that uh, throughout this case, uh, the media misrepresented uh, your position. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, again, um, what were your main concerns uh, about, you wanted, you, you were drawn to the firefighting profession uh, when this, uh, this happened where the promotional exam was thrown out and there were questions about how the city uh, promotes firefighters. How did that impact you personally? Well, I mean, it, it affected and impacted my whole career um, as as a firefighter. And again, you know, all of the articles and everything that was written, the story that they could have captured, Karen cared about capturing. And it's why I participated in her uh, collecting of information to, to write a play. Uh, you ended up leaving uh, the fire department. Uh, so tell us why. Well, in short, it was time for me to move on. Um, I thought that I had done all that I would do in that career, and I had a set of uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities that could transcend the fire service. As much as I love that career, um, I'm not just a firefighter, or as someone called me along the way, um, just a pump, pump operator. I, um, I just wanted to contribute to the community. I wanted to um, participate in leadership, and my endeavor is to uh, pave a pathway into public service careers for our, our future generations. Uh, you, we mentioned that uh, the city of New Haven uh, did make changes to how they were promote uh, within the fire rank. Do you think that those changes have been productive? I think so. I think that as long as we continue to have conversations like the one exhibited in the play, um, our, our processes can't help but progress. I wanted to go back to Karen Hartman, who's the playwright for Good Faith, uh, with us uh, from a studio in Denver. Uh, we know that uh, Frank was a, a major character in the, uh, in this play, but then as uh, people watch Good Faith, they see uh, the the actor playing uh, Michael Briscoe uh, probably emerging as like the leading character. Tell us why you made that that shift. Uh, it partly had to do with um, meeting 
Mike and learning more about not just his story, but how uh, his case, which didn't uh, make it through and change law immediately, uh, uh, represents kind of what doesn't happen when a supposedly uh, facially neutral measure excludes people. Because it was very clear to me talking to Mike, oh, this person should be a leader in the fire service. So a promotional process that leaves such a person disillusioned and not becoming a leader uh, is flawed in some way. So I'm always interested in the story that doesn't get told. And so that was the big discovery for me dramatically is, oh, okay, this is the story of what doesn't get told. This is the other side of disparate impact. And um, I became really compelled by his story. So yeah, the Mike Briscoe character is definitely the protagonist. Mm. Uh, Mike, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, this play, do you think that it, it effectively touches on this greater conversation of inequality in our country, institutional racism, uh, leading uh, to um, you know incidents where you yourself felt that you didn't have the chance that, that you felt that you, you deserved? Of course. I definitely um, think the play captures that kind of conversation, and I hope people look into it for, for that. I think if people focus on the polarized view, we'll continue to remain um, we'll we'll continue to remain remain separate in our views. I think that if we focus on the objective of inclusion, you will not miss any side or any point of view that is very valuable and 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 pointed out in the play. Uh, Karen, we just have uh, less than a couple of minutes left. Uh, again, the uh, Good Faith uh, will be playing until February 23rd. Uh, for listeners who have uh, yet to head down to Yale Rep, um, what do you what do you want them to know about this play and why they should go? That the you'll be able to find yourself in this play, and you'll be able to question and interrogate your own sense of what's fair. And I just want people to know the acting is brilliant. The director, Kenny Leon, created an incredible production, and you will be entertained and moved and have things to talk about afterwards. Uh, We heard uh, when we had Frank Ritchie on, obviously there's things that um, not everyone can agree on, but uh, do you feel like this was a productive way to talk about uh, these larger issues in our country by looking at this one specific uh, case and what happened in New Haven after? Yeah, you can hear right on this show. I mean, it's it's very alive and it's very raw. And uh, we need a forum to process this stuff. And that's that's what I'm hoping to create, you know, in good faith. <laughs> well, Karen Hartman, again, uh, she's the playwright who wrote Good Faith, four chats about race in the New Haven Fire Department. Karen, we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much uh, for devoting so much time to this show, Lucy. And also Michael Briscoe, retired New Haven firefighter, former director of public safety communications for the city of New Haven. Uh, Michael, we thank you for coming on. Uh, Overall, you were pleased with how you're portrayed? Yes. Like I said, it's not the details as much as it is the the. The, the conversation and the conversation. I'm pleased with how it's portrayed, though. I will say that. But it's not just about me. It's about the conversation. And I think if we continue to focus on the polarized pieces, we won't get anywhere. Use the play for its purpose. Mm. Promote the play for its purpose. Don't try to discount the play. I think the play did a wonderful job. Michael Briscoe, thank you.
Yep, thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.